0: Right now in this first week of May. My name is Hidarto Munoz, your 2021 Colorado Teacher of the Year, the first Chicano identifying uh, Colorado State Teacher of the Year, and you are back with the Chicano Logs. Um, I know I'm supposed to be on some kind of a schedule, some way that I'm just giving you some kind of predictability and reliability. We're really trying to flood people's feeds right now. If you haven't, um, if you're still hearing this on the Two Dope Teachers and a mic feed, I want you to head over to Apple. At Apple. <laughs> Apple Podcasts um, and subscribe to this podcast. Eventually this is gonna be available wherever you get podcasts, but I really want folks to start subscribing uh, so we can build up this listenership and we can start building this uh, community around the Chicano Logs. The Chicano Logs is a very intentional name um, and the key word being logs. So I'm a Chicano and I like to monologue, but I also like to dialogue. If there is a conversation with multiple people, I'd like to multilog. Um, I think dialogue is something that we're really missing in our comunidad, in our society, and it's just something I'm really passionate about. I love talking to people, I love hearing what you have to say. So uh subscribe, spread the word. If you like what we're doing, write us a five-star review. Um, it helps people find the Chicano Log. So it's Wednesday and I should be doing graduate school work. Really I should and that's why this episode is probably going to be fairly brief. But I want to spend a little bit of time talking about this week. Um, It's May the 3rd. Friday is May the 5th, Cinco de Mayo. And I want to talk a little bit about Cinco de Mayo from my perspective and the extent to which I actually think we should celebrate it and the extent to which um, maybe it's, maybe it's important to call out some of the corporate appropriation of this holiday. I want to tackle a couple of issues around that, but before I do that, um, make sure that you are following us on Instagram. Uh, right now we're on at 2DopeTeachers. I cannot, I cannot run under another social media account, y'all. It's too much. <laughs> cannot do it. Um, but the sort of home base for all of our podcasts, Two Dope Teachers and a Mic, the Chicano Logs, and the exit interview with Dr. Asia Lyons and uh, my guy, Kevin Adams. You can follow all of it on at Two Dope Teachers on Twitter and Instagram, Facebook.com slash Teachers. You can follow me, Gerardo Muñoz, on LinkedIn. You can see some of the work that we're doing there. And one day we're gonna get a YouTube channel up. Uh, we post some of our little headliner teaser videos on YouTube for now, but it'd be really great if we could kind of do that. So so it's going to be Cinco de Mayo. Um, I'm already bracing myself for the cringiness that is mainstream corporate appropriated Cinco de Mayo, the big offensive sombreros being worn by people who don't need them. Um, the overly, the overly exaggerate, over-exaggerated. So that's such a, that's such a, uh, repetitive. I like words and I don't like when I use words badly. Uh, so the exaggerated, um, the exaggerated mustaches, the cactuses, the burros, the serapis, like the little bottle with an X on it, it's just like too much for me. So I'm just you know, I'm bracing myself. You can if you go to Amazon, you can still see some of these really offensive costumes. Um, you will hear people talk about the drinko, the cinco, and I'm not even going to dignify any of that with any kind of um, any kind of comment. You know what I probably think about this, and that's all there is to say about that, as Forrest Gump once said. So. Um, uh, you know, I don't think this is something I need to say. I think that um, most people know that Cinco de Mayo is not Mexican Independence Day. But I want to um, I want to dig deep into the holiday. Um, I want to dispel a myth about it, and then I want to talk about why I think it's significant for us, for youth and communities today. So, a little bit of a historical overview. Um, in 1862, France invaded Mexico. Um, and so, a couple of things should be known as, as context. Um, France had built an empire under the leadership of Napoleon I. It's really wild, actually, if you, if you look at French history from the French Revolution to the Napoleonic Wars, one might ask, how the hell did we get from the French Revolution to the Napoleonic Wars? How do you go from this really optimistic, and yes, I get that it's Western European um, exceptionalist optimism, around popular sovereignty, around power to the people, around the rights of man, not my words, the words of the document, um, don't come for me, Um, the rights of man and, you know, an overthrow of ancient totalitarian uh, monarchies where the entire life of a regular French person was dictated by, um, by a totalitarian state and also with the collusion of an oppressive church. So they build this thing up. Um, there's this series of, of imperialistic adventures by Napoleon, calling them the Napoleonic Wars. He loses in Waterloo. The rest of that part is history. But what a lot of people don't realize is that in the 19th century, France had a very impressive military, possibly the most impressive military in the world at that time, um, so those, those, of you without a whole lot of historical consciousness or, or knowledge may find that surprising, but it, but it's a real thing that France was a formidable, um, military power in the world. And it would stay that way, um, all the way to world war one and world war one is when France lost an entire generation of young men to a very brutal war. And, um, and I think that. I think that still dictates a lot of French militaristic military and national identity, even today in 2023. So this was a really formidable force, and the man who came to lead the invasion of France uh, was Maximilian von Habsburg. And the you know the Habsburgs. Um, there's, I was a history major. Um, the the Habsburg memes are, like, the funniest things ever, um, and you should just look at them. I've not had a chance to verify them historically. We don't know that this is, well, I don't know, maybe somebody out there knows that the, the incest and all that kind of stuff was really a thing, but yeah, the Habsburg memes are disturbing and sort of funny, and I will just never admit that outside of me and you, dear listener. Um, but the Habsburgs were expanding, and so Napoleon, so Maximilian von Habsburg is installed on the throne. He's, co- he's a cousin of Napoleon's, and, um, and uh, his wife Carlotta, and they, they will come to live in the Castillo de Chapultepec um, in Mexico City. But here's the thing, is that they arrive, and as they march on Puebla, there's organizing going on. You know, so 1862, um, there's a notion that these folks are coming and the way that the history is told And I had the opportunity years ago, right after I graduated college, I traveled to Mexico, I spent about 10 weeks, um, hopping buses and getting to know uh, the country that I was not born in, but that my father's from, and was able to, you know, it was just really exciting to be to be in the physical spaces where history happened. So one of, um, one of our day trips was one to the Fuertes, to the forts, um, in, in the city of Puebla and, you know, and it was really funny. Like I was not funny, but it was, ah, I was wild. I was down there. And, um, as I kind of walked across this like hill from the parking lot to where the, the battlefield was, I swear, I could hear drumming. And I was like, this can't be real, like what is happening? Am I hearing the spirits of the ancestors telling me about the importance of this uh, moment in history? Is that what's happening right now? Well, no, not really. There was like a festival happening and there were drums being beaten, but you know, just to kind of be there and to know that this is where it happened. Um, The short version of the story is that this very well-armed, very well-trained, very well-organized French army showed up At the the city of Puebla, expecting to just roll over the Poblanos there and just march to Mexico City. So, and if you know the area, Puebla is a little bit less than an hour outside of the Mexico City center. And so, it is a close sort of landing space to go. And then make your way to the real place. And, you know, even today, Puebla is a nice place to go and just kind of cool your heels and recharge. Because Mexico City takes all of your concentration and energy. its I was telling somebody today, Mexico City is why I'm not afraid of any city in the world. Because it is big, bad, beautiful. Um, I love my city, even though I didn't live there and wasn't born there. But that's my roots are. Uh, Chicano, chilango, 100%, y'all. Echo en doctores. Okay, so my dad was echo en doctores, not me. I digress. So they go and they encounter this ragtag army of what, of who by all accounts were barefoot indigenous and mestizos who had like sticks and stuff. And I haven't done a deep dive to study the blow by blow. Um, you know, accounts of the Battle of Puebla, it just occurs to me, yeah, that's what I want to do. It'd be kind of a cool thing. And um, when the dust settled, this little guerrilla army of indigenos and mestizos um, had defeated this french army in a battle now if you know anything about military history you know that losing a battle doesn't mean you're going to lose the war it just is a setback and if you have the people power the firepower and the organ and the capacity frankly to come back and win the war that's generally what happens but i want to give you a little bit of historical context of mexico at that time like a lot of times we don't get to actually hear the history and this is why Oftentimes the the Battle of Puebla is not considered to be that important of an event in Mexican history, um, at least from those of us in El Norte. I've never understood, just kind of as an aside, I've never understood people saying Mexicans don't celebrate Cinco de Mayo. Yes, they do. Mexicanos celebrate Cinco de Mayo. I was there over 20 years ago. And I will tell you that it is still a celebration, not as big as Independence Day, but it is a celebration because Mexicanos are nothing if not proud of our heritage and our roots and where we came from. So I think it's inaccurate to say that Mexicans don't celebrate it. Did it become popularized in the United States of America? Yes. Did it get popularized by Mexican Americans living in the United States of America who are seeking a connection to our history and our culture and our heritage. Also, yes. Did the beer companies eventually get involved? Of course they did, because that's what they do. Mexico hadn't actually become independent until 1821. And from the moment of independence, the moment that the Spaniards conceded defeat in the 11-year War of Independence, they withdrew and... Left a lot of the same structures in place that were there. Now, Mexico appoints, Mexico elects its first president, uh, which, you know, if you check out uh, Henry Louis Gates Jr.'s uh, amazing uh, documentary series, Black in Latin America, uh, Dr. Gates, Dr. Skip Gates. Informs us that actually the first president of Mexico had a black mother, and this is verified by a historian that he interviews in this in the series. So, in a very real way, um, the first president of Mexico, like Mexico, Mexico. <laughs> oh, it's been a long day, week, and it's only the middle of the week. Um, the first president was, in fact our barack obama 180 plus years before the united states would would elect its own barack obama so the you know the the president serves but immediately what we have is the migration of um of white settlers uh, overwhelmingly people who had um who had, who had owned enslaved people and who wanted to practice their slave owning ways uh, openly without any sort of interference. And even though Mexico had outlawed slavery in its first constitution, there was an understanding among some of these folks, notably uh, the settler Stephen F. Austin, uh, that these laws were not enforceable given the, the reconstruction project that Mexico would be Um, for the foreseeable future didn't help that over the next um, 15 years or so I have to check my history I I majored in Latin American history in college and so I but this is all kind of dusty because I'm not young like I used to be but my understanding of the history is that um, over the period of the next 15 or 16 years Mexico has 35 presidents. 35 presidents. And while I can't sum up for you how each presidency went, I can tell you two things. One, um a good number of those presidents were Antonio Lopez de Santa Anna who is a notorious caudillo a notorious kind of uh, fortune seeker in his own right he sought power he wanted to be the man in mexico the the second piece is um that when you have that kind of turnover and you have conflicts that occur over that first you know two decades of the existence of 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 mexico as a nation um, it's just very difficult to have any kind of type of stability and to enforce any of your policies. So a lot of this culminates with the Battle of the Alamo, uh, which was the opening battle of the Texas War. Texas, in fact, declared independence from Mexico for nine years in order to be annexed by the United States of America. That's what was wanted. Um, and then that leads to the U.S.-Mexican War, a border dispute which leads to the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which results in close to half of Mexico's land uh, being seized uh, by the United States of America um, in what was called the Mexican Cession, um, which I think is actually accurate. They for- It was a forcible um, surrendering of land for um, $18 million. And I mean, like the Nuggets have, the Denver Nuggets have six players making over $18 million. So if that gives you any uh, year, if that gives you any perspective on what that what that dollar amount was um, back then and what it is today. So a lot of this unrest continues. In 1862, the French invade and against all odds, this uh, this little Mexican army uh, that is poorly armed and poorly trained defeats them. I, I wish I could tell you that the French turned tail and fled and said, "Nah, these Mexicans are crazy. We ain't trying to. We ain't trying to build an empire there." But they continued their march. They took uh, the castle at Chapultepec, which is in uh, um, in Chapultepec Park in Mexico City, and. Um, and there is where, is where uh, Maximilian, or as the Mexicanos called him, Maximiliano and his wife Carlota would attempt to rule Mexico as something of, wasn't really a colony, but as, as something of a, uh, of a puppet state of the Habsburg Empire. And for more on that, like, just just look it up. The, you know, imperial history is so confusing. When I was teaching it as a world history teacher, it's very hard to um, consistently name all of what went into that and, like, all the dynamics of the time. But according to a lot of the historical sources, it was a very embattled uh, reign of King Maximilian um, that there were constant revolts and constant rebellions and constant political pressure. Um, and out of all of it, in 1867, um, the French are thrown out. Napoleon, Napoleon, I keep calling him Napoleon. He's Napoleon's cousin, not Napoleon. Napoleon. Um, Maximilian and his wife Carlota are executed, beheaded, at the castle of Chapultepec, and Benito Juarez, the famous Benito Juarez, who apparently walked all the way from Oaxaca, shout out Oaxaca, that's where my family's from, um, all the way to Mexico City to gain an education. Uh, Juarez becomes president and uh, what some people have called the George Washington of Mexico. Um, as an aside, uh, there's a couple of things that Juarez never did, um, that, that George Washington did. He never burned indigenous villages um, in, in the heat of military conflict, and he never owned enslaved people. So 1867 is when the French leave and, you know just very briefly, the mess that Mexico is at that point. Keep, keep in mind that at this point, Mexico has been a country for 46 years and has seen three violent wars that completely destabilized the, the government, four for if you include um, the Texas war. And it's a nation in tatters that suddenly has to compete in the industrial revolution. and. The dictator Porfirio Díaz comes in, industrializes the country, um, but also has one of the most brutal dictatorships in the history of Latin America. So that's all the context of Cinco de Mayo. So as you as as you stand at the Rio or Illegal Pete's or any of these other uh, restaurants having your margarita, taking your shots, like just keep in mind that, that that Cinco de Mayo was a was a hard fought and shortly in short enjoyed um, victory with all kinds of historical context to it and all kinds of implications. In a lot of ways, the Battle of Cinco de Mayo was really the convergence of two um, two historical arcs that were headed in different directions. But the other thing I want to say is that. Single Maya was still meaningful for us today. There's a great collection of uh, American letters that I found years and years ago. I mean, it might have been when I was working at the Tattered Cover bookstore as a uh, first-year college student. Um, the book is called "Letters of a Nation," and one of the last letters uh, letters in the letters in that collection. Sorry, it's been a long day. One of the last letters in that collection is a letter that the author Luis J. Rodriguez wrote to um, a group of boys who are being held in a, in a correctional facility, in a youth correctional facility um, in Joliet, I think in Illinois near Chicago. Um, also as an aside, I'm going to repost my interview with uh, Luis J. Rodriguez, uh, author of the classic book. Books um, Always Running, Gang Days in LA, as well as Hearts and Hands, Building Community During Violent Times, and finally uh, Music of the Mill, which I just really love that actually is a wonderful history lesson of how the collapse of the manufacturing industry in the United States because of, well, the manufacturing industry, um, impacted, uh, Mexican-American families in LA, which, which had really built its power around, um, around steel mills and, and, uh, the steel industry. Um, but in this letter, he, he writes to young people. He had, so he had just hosted a, uh, a writing workshop with these young men, and was reflecting back and sent this letter to them on Cinco de Mayo and the letter. And I don't have it in front of me. I tried to find it before I pushed record, but then I knew that that's all I would be doing and I would never actually get three recording this. Um, you know, he says, he shares the story of the underdogs, los Abajo, which is still my favorite story. Maybe I'm a Mexican. Maybe that's, and maybe as a Chicano, the, the, the story of the underdog, the story of los Abajo is one that's still so, um, So appealing to me so easy to root for, but I also think that um, that there is something there that's just really inspirational about a group of people with their backs against the walls, who are able to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat against a really formidable opponent. He says that he says that that story and the day of Cinco de Mayo is our reminder that it's time for us to be warriors again. And I don't necessarily mean in a violent way, but obviously, you know, and I'm not I'm not saying not because the rules have absolutely changed in how we engage in discourse in this country. Um, our physical safety is under threat as much as our spiritual, emotional, and intellectual safety. Um, our bodies can be broken just as our minds and our history books can be. And that's just facts. Um, he calls on these young men to take what they've learned and to fight for their communities. And I think that is such an important lesson of Cinco de Mayo, because this is a community that said, maybe we just have sticks and stones. Maybe we just have, maybe we we don't have shoes, but our feet are calloused from walking these lands, these lands that we know like the back of our hands. And we have to defend our people and our community with everything we have. And that really just hits me deep because in these times when people are attacking our stories, when certain GOP lawmakers are trying to legislate us out of existence, the time has come to, for us to be warriors again. It, it reminds me also of um, of a line out of a movie, of all things, out of the um, Dream Keeper movie that came out a long time ago when uh, when Grandpa, played by August Schellenberger, tells um, Shane, his grandson, Shane is fleeing gang violence on the res, and... Um, And, you know, he's afraid of his enemies. He doesn't want his enemies to catch him. And and Grandpa tells him, you know, having an enemy teaches us to be warriors again. And being a warrior is a powerful thing. An enemy helps us to know ourselves in ways that maybe we wouldn't have ever done. All the journaling in the world, all the therapy sessions in the world are not going to teach you about yourself like adversity will and like somebody who is dead set on eliminating you and eliminating your voice and eliminating your credibility and validity and your reputation. So this Cinco de Mayo, I wanna call on all of you to be grateful for these enemies. Because these enemies, these enemies force us to know ourselves and to dig deep within ourselves, to protect ourselves and each other in ways that no one else ever will. I hope you enjoyed this. I hope this was worth your time. Um, like I said, feel free to hit me up with any ideas. You, like you My DMs are wide open when it comes to ideas for the show and ideas for the work and ideas for just incredible people that might want to join us here on the Chicano Logs. Um, I invite you to follow us on social media. I invite you to send me an email, features at gmail.com. And let us know your thoughts and let us know your ideas. I would love for us to enter the conversation. I hope this story was healing. I hope this story was empowering. I hope this story was disruptive. And more than anything else, I hope this story gave you a way that you can put your hand on your chest and say, Parlante,